According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew 16 is our passage this morning, taking us down through the end of the chapter and even through the first part of chapter 17. In the outline, we're going to combine episodes 47, 48, and 49 through the Harmony of the Gospel outline. Episode 47, Jesus foretells his death, followed by the promise of the kingdom, followed by the transfiguration. And uh, they come in very short sequence in all of the Synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They come in very short sequence, and uh, always in this order, as he promises that uh, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And that promise is, is followed by the event of the transfiguration some six days later. And uh, it's always, uh, it's immediately in the description that it follows, even with a, the six-day time delay. It's one verse later than after the promise of the coming kingdom that these disciples are transported through time. I believe they're taken forward through time and permitted to observe the, uh, the glories of the Lord and Moses and Elijah. All right, well, we'll deal with that in turn. For the moment, though, we're still at verse 21 of chapter 16 as the consequence to the great uh, 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 testimony of of Peter here. He had his great confession, Thou art the Christ, Son of the living God. And the Lord said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, and things are wonderful, at least through this episode. And then in the consequence of that, he begins to prepare them for the cross. And it's a very short downhill slide for Peter at this point, and he gets rebuked. So we'll be addressing these issues here this morning. Before we do any of this, though, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that distractions are set aside, our thoughts are gathered, and our heart is quiet before the authority of the Lord. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice in how faithful you are day by day. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. We rejoice to have the opportunity this morning to study to show ourselves approved. We ask for distractions to be set aside. We ask for concentration upon the material. And we pray especially as we focus on the difficulties that uh, the Lord was preparing his disciples for handling the difficulties. We want to have our eyes open for, for the reality of the conflict and not stick our heads in the sand or act as if uh, it's not going to happen. So, Father, uh, open our eyes and prepare us for the difficulties. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So this is episodes 47, 48, and 49 that will have one overall outline to cover all events. Let's read starting in Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. We'll be dealing with mental attitudes quite a bit there in verse 23. What do we fix our thinking on? Where do we control our thinking? Verse 24, But then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Interesting use of cross there. He is describing what must take place. 
that uh, he must be killed, and he fully understands the nature of that killing, will be through the Roman execution method of crucifixion. He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life, that's his soul, will lose it, but whoever loses his soul for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with all his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. That uh, takes us down through the kingdom promised. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then... Chapter 17 begins with verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves and was transfigured before them. All right, so we're going to cover all of these episodes one after another with a continuous narrative outline. We start with point one, and we key in on the phrase, from that time. It's found in... Uh, Matthew 16:21 here, and there are comparable expressions in the Mark and Luke record. But from that time indicates that Peter's great confession marks a turning point in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. We key in on the phrase, from that time, the time of Peter's confession, the time of Jesus and his quizzing of the disciples. Jesus needed to find out where they were in their maturity, in their discernment, if they're caught up in the excitement of the, of the, uh, the attitude prevailing uh, amongst their countrymen, or whether they have the divine viewpoint to understand the reality of who he was and why he was here. So we observe the turning point here from this point forward. There have been previous occasions where he would warn individuals not to testify concerning him. Uh, the, the demoniac formerly known as Legion was one such example. There were other such examples. But now he is forbidding even the twelve, even his disciples, that they are no longer to proclaim him as the Christ, that they are no longer to proclaim the kingdom of heaven being at hand and other similar type proclamations. From this time, Jesus began to show his disciples. This then becomes a very personal ministry. Uh, the, uh, the great crowds, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, uh, all those great events are over with. That uh, from this point to the end of his ministry, he is focused on the 12. He is focused on those true disciples that are following him. So we have a transition, a turning point, as it were. You and I need to recognize when we past those points in our ministry, for example, when you get a conviction of a spiritual gift, when you get a calling to a particular ministry, you realize that this is a turning point. It's a, you put your hand to the plow and there's no looking back. There's no turning back. In fact, there's divine discipline consequences for putting your hand to the plow and turning back. So uh, it, it does mark a stage of growth in any believer's life. And, and Christ is our pattern for this. Part of what we're going to discuss this morning is the nature of Jesus Christ and how he laid aside his privileges. He was not tapped into omniscience throughout his earthly ministry. He had to learn the word of God. He had to grow. He had to put scriptures together with scriptures in order to recognize how it applied in his circumstance. And then, uh, of course, became the volitional test whether he was going to be obedient or not. That's what we'll focus on here under point two. And I think as we look at this, and we see the transition here in verse 21, the from that time, and then also the, the demonstration. He began to show. 
that the demonstration did not precede this moment. There may have been other messages where he alluded to it or where he spoke of its coming, but here comes the very beginnings of the very clear demonstrations. And when you come to that point, realize that your fellow believers may not be at that same point where you are. <laughs> realize that you are under a conviction and you are stepping forward on faith. And your fellow brothers and sisters may not be under the same conviction. Your spouse may not be under the same conviction. That it, it may become a test in terms of how, uh, how uh, you bring your spouse to that point or how your fellow believers come to that point. Paul was at a point in his walk where he was ready to go to Jerusalem and he had everybody in the world telling him, don't go. Including God-fearing believers under the word of God saying, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. And we're left at a point there saying, now wait a minute, why is this? Why do they not have the same conviction I have? All right, we'll address some of those things. I think we had one already in uh, in uh, Luke, for example, before we look at the next point. In Luke chapter 2, Christ is in the temple. He's 12 years old, and he's under a conviction. And uh, they think he's in the caravan, but he, he'd stuck around in the temple. And uh, had some questions to get his answers, and he was himself giving answers. And then uh, Joseph and Mary are on the way back to Nazareth again, realize he's not there, and they they waste takes three full days, a day out, a day back, and a day looking for him before they find him there in the temple. And we're familiar with this; we studied this some time back. But in verse 48, Luke 2:48. Uh, Mary says, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be about my father's business or in my father's house? And here, I believe, is, is an illustration of what we're talking about where a believer is under a conviction and fellow believers don't understand it. And in this case, it's uh, the 12-year-old Jesus under the conviction and his parents that don't understand it. And he has that question. He says, did you not know? In verse 50, but they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And so we have a different conviction. Jesus is under a conviction. They don't have that same conviction. So how do you resolve it when you have one believer with a conviction and another believer not so convicted? All right. Well, is it always an issue of right or wrong? Or is it an issue of... Uh, maturity? Is it an issue of uh, submission? Is it an I what, what is it? And if you have a distinction here and one person is under conviction but the other person's not, where do you, uh, where does the give and take come in? For example, if it's a husband under the conviction and his wife is not, where does the give and take come in? If uh, the husband's under conviction that they're going to go to the mission field, that he's being called to Papua New Guinea, or he's being called to the jungles of Botswana. And the wife says, well, gee, dear, uh, I don't have that same conviction, right? That's the grace way of saying it. The not-so-grace way of saying it is, you know, have you flipped your lid? Are you out of your mind? What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm not going to Botswana, all right? Well, what if it's the wife who has the conviction and the husband does not, see? 
And he and she's not the spiritual leadership, and, and he's under no obligation in terms of following her um, leadership. So I think we have the illustration of it here where Christ had the conviction, but his leaders, his parents, did not. And uh, we discussed this at the time. Was he, he was not sinning, and he was not carnal, but is it conceivable that he was wrong? Not sinning, but wrong, in the sense that he had an eagerness to be about his father's business. He had a desire to be about his father's business. And he had, shall we say, the adolescent masculine eagerness to get busy with it. The natural impatience of youth. Again, please, please. He was not carnal and he was not rebellious. And he was not sinning. But in the process of learning the will of God, every believer has to learn the elements of timing. Every single one of us has to learn what it means to wait upon the Father. To be eager for something, and yet to then stop and recognize, you know what, it's not time for that yet. See, I believe Jesus was learning that lesson right here. That he must be about his Father's business but he had to learn that it was not yet time. And when he comes to conclude that they don't have that same conviction, when he says, did you not know? To me, he's shocked by that statement. You didn't know this? Well, wait a minute. <laughs> and Jesus Christ, it says, continued in subjection to them. Verse 51. He went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And this then becomes the tremendous humility test in his regard. That he was ready, he was eager, but it was not yet time. So we have the illustration of it there. Alright, back to Matthew 16 then. Peter is not of the same conviction that the Lord's under. <laughs> Alright. I guess that's putting it mildly. Jesus is under conviction that his nation has rejected the Christ. He's going to single out the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. They are the accountable party. They are the, the uh, leaders. And uh, by and large, when it comes to his true disciples, you, talk, you look at Peter and the Twelve, you look at the other, you look at the Seventy, you look at the other disciples, how many of them were elders of Israel? How many of them were chief priests? How many of them were scribes? All right. Very few, if any. And we, we know a couple. We know about Nicodemus. We know about Joseph of Arimathea, that they were, uh, that they were rulers, that is, of the Pharisee party, but they were not chief priests or scribes. And uh, the party that uh, was accountable, so far as the father's concerned, had rejected uh, the Christ. We'll talk about that here in a moment. All right. We have a turning point. We have to recognize the turning points. And if you have a brother or sister that is on the verge of a turning point, you better be in prayer for them. Lift them up. If they're praying over their spiritual gift, join with them in that prayer. If they're praying about a call to the ministry, join with them in that prayer. Because if they're at that verge of a turning point, they need wisdom. Absolutely, they need wisdom. All right, secondly, the plan of God clearly has a variety of potentialities. Write it down. Potentialities. 
I'll define what I mean here in a moment. The plan of God clearly has a variety of potentialities. But at this stage of his ministry, Jesus identified the necessity of the reality of his coming passion. We have to differentiate between the potentialities and the reality. Because it's the reality that locks us in to the have to. When you understand the reality, then you understand the necessity. And the necessity, the have to, may not, uh, may not line up with our want to's. The plan of God clearly has a variety of potentialities. Matthew 11, verses 21 and 23, we've studied it before, we'll go back to it again this morning. The plan of God clearly has a variety of potentialities, but at this stage of his ministry, Jesus identified the necessity of the reality of his coming passion. And we're going to relate this over to the term must. He must go to Jerusalem. And underline the word must. It's a have to. We're going to relate it to Luke 24 and to Acts uh, I really believe Luke locked in on the concept and recorded it very well in his gospel and in a couple of different sermons in uh, the book of Acts. Peter's sermon in Acts 3 and Paul's sermon in, in Acts 17. But Luke recorded them all in uh, Luke 24:26, Acts 3:18 and 21, and Acts 17:3. We have the language of obligation. Here in Matthew 16:21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. It was a obligation. It is a have to. It is a necessity. And when we lock in on the reality, the reality is a necessity. What God has planned, God brings about. No purpose of God's can be thwarted. So when it is when it is his plan, there are no alternative plans. Now, let's back up a little bit to chapter 11. I want to remind you of some things here. Because I think this really helps us to understand the Lord's thinking. Matthew 11. And we've got a rebuke. In Matthew 11, starting in verse 20. He began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. They did not have a change of thinking, a mental attitude adjustment in response to the miracles that were accomplished. And I think we have so much of a description there of the plan of God and so much of, a, of, a, of an insight into why or how God operates when he created Volition, when he created a, a, a universe in which angels and mankind are faced with the, uh, the consequences of their decisions. And that God will manifest and testify to his power. God will communicate a message of revelation. And God will reinforce that message with evidence of his uh, of his power. Romans 1 says that all man is without excuse. We've seen his invisible attributes, his eternal power clearly made known. 
And beyond what's made known in natural revelation is what's made known in the Word of God, in special revelation. And beyond what's made known in special revelation comes the particular miracles and signs and testimonies of spirit-indwelled prophets. And so these cities are, they were without excuse anyway because of creation. And they're without even less excuse because of the Bible. And they're without even less excuse because uh, Jesus Christ was among them in performing miracles. So he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. And that's what it comes down to in terms of God wasn't coercing their thinking, but he was laying out there the evidence so that their condemnation is that much more severe when they don't adjust their thinking. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. The twin cities here being rebuked as a corollary to Tyre and Sidon. If the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And so he presents a potentiality here. Uh, a parallel universe, as it were. There's a new story this morning about multiple dimensions. All right, And, and all of the high-powered uh, mathematicians and, and physicists in the world today are trying to reconcile some problems in their quantum physics and their quantum mechanics with respect to different things. And they've now concluded that there have to be parallel universes or their quantum mechanics break down. All right. Well, they'll figure it out one of these days. But the Bible talks about what if scenarios. And the what if is not just human beings speculating. The what if is recorded in the God-breathed and inspired word of God as being true. And Jesus Christ here, the spirit-indwelled prophet, is testifying to what is true. What the Holy Spirit records here in the canon of Scripture. If the miracles Jesus did in Chorazin and Bethsaida, had they been done in Tyre and Sidon, those cities would have repented. So that's a potentiality. That's a what-if scenario. And God's plan, of course, encompasses all of the what-if scenarios. What if Tyre and Sidon had repented? What if Sodom and Gomorrah had repented? What would the consequences there have been? And God's plan encompasses every step of the way, every decision a human being makes. And God's plan is right there. So, uh, to me, this is an even greater um, description of God's plan. God's plan, uh, we, we talk about, well, we've had 6,000 years of human history. Well, we've had 6,000 years of human history or more, depending on where you date it. We probably had up to 8,000 years of human history, depending on where you date Adam and Eve and things there. But whatever, let's just say, let's use the Septuagint rather than the, the Masoretic text, and say that, that uh, Adam and Eve were 5300 B.C. or 5500 B.C. All right, so we've already had 7,500 years of human history. That's in this timeline, right? Well, what about the timeline where Sodom and Gomorrah repent and they, they remain to this day? And every other timeline, see, God's outside of time. And the idea, yes, he sees the Alpha to the Omega of the reality but he also sees the Alpha and the Omega of all these potentialities that may or may not happen. Clearly, only one reality takes place. Everything else, all the potentialities, never did take place. And they won't. The same thing happens in verse 23 with respect to Capernaum. Capernaum tops the charts for the most pathetic. That they had the greatest miracles and yet did not repent. 
And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. So the most godless city in the history of mankind is put in contrast with Capernaum, who received more miracles than any other city. Obviously, this precedes the miracles that will be performed in Jerusalem and the resurrection and all the things in the in the Passion Week. I think Jerusalem has a greater accountability than Capernaum, but in Matthew 11, that hasn't happened yet. So he uses Capernaum and contrasts Capernaum with Sodom. So there are a variety of potentialities. A lot of what ifs. What's the plan of God going to do? What's going to happen? And for you and I, as creatures of time, bound by time, we're living one day at a time, and we don't know what happens tomorrow. We don't know what happens the next day. We don't know what happens the day after that. We're living one day at a time, see. Now, in terms of ministry, if, uh, if you're preparing for ministry, if you're preparing to use a gift, if you're preparing to pursue a ministry or accomplish the effects the Father has, then everything still future is, is a wide open field of potentialities. Everybody that's in our training ministry right now, they're, they're learning Greek, they're learning Hebrew, they're learning systematic theology, they're, they're picking up all these tools, they're preparing, but they don't know where the Lord's going to take them or what the Lord's going to do with them. Are they going to have a, uh, a domestic pulpit ministry in a local church in the United States? Or are they going to have a, a foreign mission field? Are they going to find themselves uh, in the jungles of Botswana, as I mentioned a little while ago? That's all open. Those are all in the realms of potentiality until the Father brings about the reality. At that point, you've got to deal with it. <laughs> At that point, you've got to say, all right, I'm either going to obey or not when he calls you to, uh, to the work. So we've got the what-if passages. And the neat thing, of course, is that, that uh, the Father's plan encompasses all of them. And... Uh, we don't have to worry about all the other what-ifs. Now, back to chapter 16, then. I guess we should ponder, at least for a moment, what other potentialities might there have been besides the cross? What was Jesus thinking prior to this episode? Before He was convicted, before He was had concluded that Israel had rejected the Christ. What was he thinking up to that point of time? What was he thinking when he was calling disciples? What was he thinking when he was proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand? What was he thinking when he, when he was directing his disciples to baptize with the baptism of John, the baptism of repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? What was he thinking when he was encountering the scribes and the Pharisees, and the elders, and the chief priests, these groups here that have rejected him. All right? And what was the potentiality there of Israel not rejecting their king, not rejecting their Christ, and actually repenting? You know, we talk about the potentialities of a scenario in which uh, Israel was humbled. All right? Now, uh, we're kind of hampered because we have so much hindsight. <laughs> we have, we've got to pretend we don't have a New Testament here. Just consider that all we have was an Old Testament. What if, 
for example, in the process of this earthly ministry, um, that can you imagine a timeline in which uh, the Christ is ministering? He's he's uh, he's uh, describing the kingdom of heaven. Israel is humbled. Israel is is rejoicing over their, the presence of their Messiah. They are uh, they are seeking his face. They are uh, under positive volition. They are accepting the plan of God. All right. And then, of course, scriptures have to be fulfilled. And so we find Jerusalem now surrounded by their enemies. We find the armies of the earth, the Roman armies now surrounding Jerusalem. Okay. And the great hardship of second advent, the tribulation unveiled, different things like that. See. Forget for the moment we have hindsight that knows the first advent and second advent are separated by 2,000 years. All right? Forget all of that. Would the Christ still have gone to the cross? Absolutely. Yeah, there's not a scenario out there that would have avoided the cross. But it could have, but did it have to come at the hands of Israel? The Lamb of God was slain from the foundation of the world. The, the plan that called for the redemption of humanity is the plan that was put into effect the moment that God the Father determined that His creation was going to be a volitional creation. See, and the Son was in agreement with that. But could you imagine a, a, a scenario in which Israel was not the rebellious people that put Him on the cross? Maybe it would have just simply been the Romans that put Him on the cross. Or other, other what-if scenarios. All right? In any event, that's not, we're not dealing with any of those what-ifs at the moment. But the, uh, the truth is, is that until the rejection was evident, until the, uh, the certainty of, of this matter became clear to Jesus Christ, he did not yet know how or when or by whose hand or uh, the, the precise nature of it. I believe now at this point he knows. And he knows it's, it's the very next Passover. He knows that he's had his last living Passover and he's in his final year of his life. And it will be on the next, uh, Nisan, uh, the next uh, Nisan 14 there that he is going to be crucified on the next Passover. All right, the reality of it, we have the language of must in, uh, in this verse. It coincides with Luke 24, 26. Luke 24, 26. On the Emmaus Road, he's resurrected. And um, he's teaching them, and uh, they still haven't put it together. They don't even know who's teaching them. They think he's just a stranger on the road to Emmaus. And uh, verse 25, he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? It was necessary. Why was it necessary? Because that's what was consistent with what had been promised in the Scriptures. If it didn't happen, then those prophecies are lies. And since God can't lie and his prophecies come true, then it was a have to. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. It was necessary because God had revealed them ahead of time. And God will make true on everything he says. Same thing comes up. Now Christ preaches that. Peter preaches that. And Paul preaches that. 
Peter preaches it in Acts 3. Acts 3.17, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. Notice, your rulers did also. When the spiritually accountable people fail, the people face the consequences. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. That's why it was a have to. Verse 21 Notice uh, there's another half to here as well, because Jesus has departed. And so uh, the prayer is, is that Jesus is coming back. Verse 21 says, whom heaven must receive, there's a half to, until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Second advent will still take place. Why? Because God made promises, promises of the restoration. So there's another half to there. In Acts 17.3, we have another half to. This time, Paul's the one that's preaching the message. So Jesus preached it. Paul, uh, Peter preached it. Now Paul's preaching it. They arrive at Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them. And for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. From the Scriptures. What do your Scriptures say? This is how Arnold Fruchtenbaum got saved. Because someone pointed out things in his own Bible. He says, that's not right. That's not in my Bible. Yes, it is. Right here in your Bible. All describing Jesus Christ. Explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And saying, this Jesus who I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. Your scriptures, your Old Testament scriptures, describe the suffering of the Messiah. Now let me tell you about the one who fulfilled all that. All right, so the plan of God has a variety of potentialities, but at this stage of ministry, Jesus identified the necessity of the reality of his coming passion. When you lock in on the reality, when all of the potentialities are cleared out of the way and you have the reality made clear, you recognize God's will. Until that happens then you're still dealing in a, in a whole realm of potentialities and you can leave that with the Father and faith rested. Say, Father, whatever you want to bring about. We're talking about that this morning in the marriage context. You know, so long as you're single, then you've got all these potentialities that are out there, <laughs> right? Until that gets narrowed down into the one reality that the Father says, all right, here's the one I prepared for you. Here's you. I prepared you for them. I prepared them for you. Here it is. All right. The language of necessity is the particle day. D-E-I. Day. It's actually an uh, impersonal verb at this point, coming from deo, to bind. It is binding. It is necessary. Day in the Strong's Concordance is number 1163. This is a have-to. It is a compulsion. It's a recognition of the plan of God that will not be thwarted, cannot be thwarted. Now, day never occurs by itself. It always has other verbs that follow after it. Uh, verbs that complete the sense. The same thing in English as it is in Greek. If I use the phrase have-to... It's kind of empty, right? It just leaves you hanging. If I tell you, all right, now before you leave, you have to 
Have to what? <laughs> right? The to there on the end of have to is kind of demanding a, an infinitive verb of some point. Have to what? Okay? Well, it, it communicates the obligation. It communicates the, the compulsion, the necessity. But it requires the, the following verb then to make it complete. In this case, it's followed by a handful of verbs. It's followed by uh, the verb to go to Jerusalem. That's a have to. Suffer. That's a have to. Not going to be a party when he gets there. Um, be rejected. That's a have to. The verb for rejection is not in Matthew, but it's in both Mark and Luke. So we'll look at that here in a moment. Uh, to be killed. Without death, there's no forgiveness of sin. The death must take place. And then uh, raised up on the third day. That's another have to. Part of the plan of God. So all of those verbs complete the have to aspect. They all come together in the total uh, package of what the passion of the Christ is all about. But it is an obligation. It recognizes that the Father has this plan and it will be accomplished. It will be brought about. All right, let's spell out the things that he has to do. He has to go to Jerusalem. He has to go to Jerusalem. Now, you talk about the what ifs. You know, could he not have been the atonement somewhere else? You know, when it comes to Jerusalem and the unique nature of Jerusalem, the location of Mount Moriah, the fulfillment of where uh, Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac, the fulfillment of where uh, David set apart the threshing floor of, of Aruna for the holy place, and yet also fulfillment of suffering outside the camp, the recognition that he did not go into that earthly temple. He did not go into the Holy of Holies. That was the earthly temple where the religious leaders were. They had rejected him. He suffered outside the camp. There's so much that's fulfilled here. And yet the nature of Jerusalem itself... Look at Matthew twenty three thirty seven for a moment. And you stop to consider Capernaum was kind of a pinnacle because of the miracles, but Jerusalem is the pinnacle for so many other reasons beyond the miracles, the actual number of prophets that were sent to Jerusalem. Matthew twenty three thirty seven, and I guess we'll there's a long stretch of woes beginning in verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And then all of the woes that take you down through verse 36. But I want you to see the message that comes in verse 34. And even prior to that. Let me just pick up on the last woe in verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. <laughs> you know, think about it. Think about, um, and we do the same thing. All cultures do. You have these tombs. You have, um, you know, I've been to the state cemetery here in Austin, and, and, and Gen uh, General Albert Sidney Johnson's buried there, and it's a little bit of history, and, and you go and you, you do these things. But the tombs of the prophets that you killed... Think about it. <laughs> you reject their message. You hate them. You hate their ministry. You put them to death. And then you build a tomb for them. Right? Why would you do that? 
If, if they really were evil and wicked, and you hated them, and you put them to death, why build a monument? Why build a tomb? And if they are worthy of a monument, worthy of a tomb, worthy of remembrance, and worthy of celebration, and all of that, why'd you kill them? <laughs> it's just so inconsistent. Well, these guys, they, uh, they build tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And they say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the shedding of the blood. See, that's how they justified it. They said, well, okay, yeah, our, our forefathers, they shouldn't really have executed Isaiah. That was bad. You know, they shouldn't have uh, sawn him in two. That was, that was really bad. That was wicked King Manasseh who did that. So, you know, we'll, we'll make up for it. We'll, we'll build a wonderful little tomb here for Isaiah. And uh, we'll, we'll uh, show our, our dedication to the Lord. Well, what's hypocritical about it, of course, is that they have a superior attitude saying that they're a lot better than their forefathers. And yet, what are they going to do? They're going to crucify the Christ. They're going to do worse than any other generation who killed prophets. Um, they're going to kill the greatest prophet. They're going to kill the Messiah. So he says, you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets. Now, notice this. I want you to notice the um, prophecy here. I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. This is... Anticipating, what's this anticipating? Well, church is mystery. Tribulation. The prophets are going to come. The, the sealed 144,000, the two witnesses, and uh, so many others that uh, they're going to scourge and persecute from city to city. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Basically, from Genesis to Chronicles. What was to them the Bible at that time? The, the Old Testament, Genesis to Chronicles. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then, of course, there's the generation that crucifies the Christ, but then there's the generation that he's talking about, the tribulation. There's nothing like it on the earth. Then he goes on into a lament in verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. See, this is a song. He composes a psalm here. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. See, when it comes right down to it, the Father is merciful. The Father sends messengers. He gives opportunity for repentance. But when the hardness of heart rebels, the volition is honored. You were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It will take a national repentance. And that will, of course, take hell on earth. It's going to take the, the evils of the tribulation. It's going to take the tortures of the Antichrist. It's going to take everything described in the seals, the bowls, and the trumpets. Until they're willing to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Christ will return at second advent. 
All right, that's why he must go to Jerusalem. There's no other place in the world where the Christ would be, should be crucified. Another half to suffer many things. He must suffer many things. You know, the thing about suffering is described as a have to. And it's not just applied to Christ. You and I face it. We face suffering. Let's face it. It's the human experience. The difference being, as believers in Christ, we have the privilege of being able to face human suffering with divine resources. We can face earthly suffering with heavenly power. All three Gospels reference the suffering. Matthew 16.21, Mark 8.31, and Luke 9.22. The verb for suffering is the verb pasco. Pasco. Alright, Pasco. It's not Pasco, Washington, or Pasco, Idaho, or any place like that. Pasco means to suffer, where we get the, uh, the, uh, the passion. The English word passion comes from Pasco. To suffer. And we will suffer. And to the extent that we suffer, we should rejoice, because if we suffer, we shall also reign. And that's, those are first class conditions. Since we suffer, we will also reign. We're privileged and blessed to be able to experience the suffering of humanity and the suffering of the Christian way of life, producing the eternal weight of glory. That's our responsibility. That's our job description. Unfortunately, the immature perspective that believers have, immature believers have, is that, oh, well, now that I'm a believer, I shouldn't have any more suffering. Wrong. You have the same suffering an unbeliever has. You just have the privilege of being able to do it for the glory of Jesus Christ. And you probably have more. Because on top of the normal suffering of the human experience, now you get to receive the additional suffering of uh, angelic conflict and the additional suffering of the Father's divine discipline. When it comes right down to it, what suffering does the unbeliever have? The suffering of the human experience. Does, he, does the unbeliever experience angelic conflict suffering? No. He's of his father, the devil. He lives in this world. This world is his nature. But when you come out of this world, now you add angelic conflict suffering on top of the suffering of fallen humanity and the natural human experience. And then, beyond that, during times of carnality, the Father administers divine discipline. Think about it. Divine discipline is not administered to the unbeliever. You ever think about that? Why would the Father discipline? That's not his child. But as soon as you're saved, now you're my child. We get that all the time. Children say, well, well, Billy's mom lets him do such and such. Yeah, well, I'm not Billy's mom. Or Billy's dad. Right? Well, well, they're doing this. Well, I'm not Billy's parent. They'll have to punish him. Not my job. I'll deal with you because <laughs> you're my child. This is all hypothetical, of course. has no bearing on any... Any resemblance to persons uh, is entirely coincidental. To my knowledge, I have no children of mine have any friend named Billy. So I pick on that as a uh, random... Oh, you do have a friend named Billy. He doesn't go by Billy. He goes by Bill. All right. 
Jimmy. You got a friend named Jimmy? No. Okay. He has to go to Jerusalem. He has to suffer. He has to be rejected. Be rejected. And the truth is, is that it can't happen yet because the triumphal entry has not happened yet. But it will happen on the very week that he enters into Jerusalem on a colt with the children singing Hosanna. The elders, the chief priests, and the scribes will put him to death. He will be rejected. And the, uh, the language on rejection is interesting. It's, uh, let me pull it up because it's, uh, it's in Mark and in Luke, Mark 8.31. I'll bring it up for you here. I was going to get the Strong's number together. Apodaki Mazza right here. In the text, it's Apodaki Mastenai, because it's a passive infinitive. But it comes from Apodaki Mazzo. And uh, Strong's number on this. Number 593. Apodakimazo. And what's interesting is that it comes as a compound of dakimazo. Dakimazo by itself is a good term. Dakimazo is a great term. Dakimazo is what the Father does for you and I. He evaluates us, He tests us for our approval. We should all be happy to be dakimazoed because that's our evaluation. That's how a, the steel of a sword is tempered and tested. And uh, each one of us should be able to rejoice when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The Father tests us for approval. That's a good thing. But the compound is not a good thing because the apo is a rejection. It's the idea of away from that you have evaluated it and you want nothing to do with it. See, and this is even worse than just simply dismissing it out of hand or rejecting it without even considering it. Here you evaluate it, you consider it, and you still reject it anyway. That, that's horrible. They heard his message. They saw him. They knew who he was. There was no disputing his lineage and his and his position in terms of the, the rightful heir of David. He should be on the Davidic throne. They want to know part of that. They considered the evidence and they rejected him. Apo Dokimadza, number 593. So that's a fun word study if you want to pursue that. Seven occurrences in the New Testament. We also have a Jeremiah passage in Jeremiah 38. Uh, a couple other Septuagint uses. Primarily, it's used in the fulfillment of the uh, stone which the builders rejected. It has become the chief cornerstone. You're familiar with that text. Uh, the Gospel of Barnabas uses it in the Church Fathers. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Hebrews 12:17. Again, that's the quote from Jeremiah. Ah, Here's where uh, in Hebrews 12:17, even uh, where Esau felt bad about selling his birthright, 
And then it said, For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. This is the father rejecting Esau. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. He had regret. He had tears. He had emotionalism. He did not have the repentance, a true change of thinking, adjusted to the standard of the Word of God. He had regrets and tears, but no repentance. People that confuse repentance with uh, regrets and tears need to uh, pay attention to passages like that. All right. Um, got some more time here. Who rejected him? The elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. The elders, the chief priests, and the scribes rejected him. All three, uh, Mark and Luke, are, are unanimous on this. Matthew does not reference the rejection. But he does mention the sufferings that come at the hand of the elders, chief priests, and scribes. So all three Gospels will use the presbyteroi elders, the chief priests, and the, uh, the scribes. Elders, the family, clan, and tribal elders demonstrate the political rejection of Christ. Rejected by the elders. <laughs> at least David had one tribe that supported him when he... Uh, First ascended to the throne, Judah supported him. The other eleven went after uh, Ishbosheth, but Christ was rejected by even his own tribe. The elders of Israel rejected him. Remember, uh, Israel was made up of a tribal confederation, not uh, different from our own, you know, confederation of states and so forth. Families, clans, and tribes came together in rejection of the Christ. Chief priests, the priesthood leadership, demonstrated the spiritual rejection of Christ. Now, there were priests early on in the book of Acts who became believers and were added to the church and, and became church-age believers, but they were not the chief priests. Interestingly enough, the chief priests were so politicized, most of them weren't even Levites. A lot of the chief priests, including the high priest, were appointed by Herod. They bought their position. Uh, if you ever read the Grace Notes material on this, you realize what an organized crime racket that the, uh, the family of the high priest truly was. It was all, I mean, modern day mafia today could, could learn lessons from the, the high priest of, uh, of uh, the first century. And then the scribes. The educational leadership. These were the Pharisees. Not, all, not every Pharisee became a scribe, but the scribes and the Pharisees, the educational leadership, demonstrated the academic rejection of the Christ. After the destruction of the temple, during the time of their captivity, uh, the, the rise of, of the synagogues was a significant development in the history of the Jewish people. And they couldn't sacrifice animals anymore. They couldn't offer their, they couldn't pursue their priesthood. What they could do is they could study the Word of God. And the, the most diligent Bible students who became the Bible teachers, who became the experts in what the Bible had to say, um, became very important in their culture. So we have political rejection, spiritual rejection, and educational rejection, academic rejection of the Christ. And if, if these scribes, if they say he's not the Christ, then, well, they must know. They're the experts, right? See, here's the thing. If you're going to just blindly follow in what your academic priesthood is telling you, you're accountable. You're supposed to be noble-minded. Search the Scriptures. See if these things are so. 
if you're just going to be blindly following along with who your academic priesthood you know, tells you is going on, isn't there enough of that in this world? Isn't that what the whole Roman mechanism is all about? You just follow along in the Roman church and whatever your academic priesthood tells you, well, that's what it says, that's what it means. That's how they interpret it. No, search the scriptures, see if these things are so. You're a believer priest. You have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You can rightly divide the word of truth. You can study to show yourself approved before God's face. And it's not just the Roman academic priesthood. What about the doctrinal academic priesthood? Well, you know, the colonel says this is what it means. Really? What are you convicted of? Because Pastor Theme says it, or Pastor Braun says it, or Pastor Eichmann says it, or Pastor Bolander says it, or Pastor Carnegie says it. See, the thing is, though, is that they had set up this system to where they were totally sold out for the school of Shammai, the school of Hillel. You were, you were wrapped up in your theological school. And you held that position. That's what your academic leadership was telling you. All right, these were the threefold society rejections and uh, what motivated the, the rejection of the Messiah. Remember, as far as the, the uh, rejection is concerned, Christ died on the cross for all humanity. For I mean, he was, not just Jews needed a redeemer. Gentiles needed a redeemer. All right, But he came to his own. And the rejection by his own becomes significant. All right. When we come back next week, we will look at Peter here. Peter played the useful idiot for Satan's efforts to discourage Jesus. Do you know the term useful idiot? you know where that comes from? We'll deal with it a little bit. The, uh, because he's voicing what the adversary wants. The adversary wants Jesus to start thinking more highly of himself than he ought to think. The adversary wants Jesus to start feeling selfish. The adversary would love for Jesus to take his eyes off of God's interest and put it on self-interest. Say, oh, this shouldn't happen to you. You don't deserve this. These are the voices of the adversary saying, you're better than this. You deserve better than this. You shouldn't have to face this. See, and that's the discouraging word that gets whispered in our ears when we think about the testing we're going through. We don't like our testing. We don't have to like our testing. But because we don't like our testing, we have a temptation there that says, you know what, I shouldn't have to deal with this. I'm better than this. Very dangerous. And so we'll look at Peter's role in voicing, in voicing the adversary's uh, whispering there. But that'll have to wait for next week. We have any questions? I know I covered a lot. Anything with potentialities and realities, anything like that. If you think of it, tonight's our question and answer night, so uh, jot yourself a note and we'll be glad to take questions at 7.30. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness to guide us in the truth. We rejoice in how faithful you are. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.